There are many mysteries that perplex evolutionary scientists that could easily be solved by reading God's Word. So what are some of these difficult questions that evolutionists struggle to answer? Stay tuned. Notice that in a very unscientific way, the editors of science are asking the wrong question. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. In the July 2005 edition of Science Magazine, the editors posed 125 questions that, according to secular scientists, have not yet been answered. But it just so happens that creation scientists have the right answers to some of these mysteries that evolutionists have been trying to solve for years. Join us for the next 15 minutes as we consider some of the questions presented in Science Magazine and hear creation scientists from coast to coast give us answers to unanswerable evolutionary questions. In part one of this two-part series, we'll focus on the origin of life, alien life forms, mass extinctions, and the evolution of flowers. One of evolution's unanswered questions regards the origin of life. Just how and where did life on Earth arise? Dr. Danny Faulkner, astronomer with the University of South Carolina, Lancaster, says that question is very easy for creationists to answer, but presents a real challenge to evolutionists. Creationists, of course, believe that God created man. He created life as well during the creation week, and it happened right here on the Earth. On the other hand, evolutionists have to believe that uh, life arose spontaneously. You had non-living things that eventually turned into living things, and those living things developed into higher orders. And there have been different theories over the years about where that happened. They used to say it was in some primordial soup in a, in a warm pond somewhere, or maybe in a tidal basin. For the last couple of decades, they've been looking at hydrothermal vents deep in the oceans at places where life possibly could have arisen. And there have been other attempts to uh, argue other extreme places. I think they're arguing for those extreme places because if you can get life to develop in extreme places, then it's a lot easier to get life somewhere else in the universe, like some of the planets or satellites in the solar system. And even though the Bible tells us that life was created in six literal days in the beginning, evolutionists will not accept this answer. So this is very closely related to one's worldview about creation or evolution. And again, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis exactly how and when life began, and evolutionists are still pitching for some story about how and when it began, and they keep changing the story as time goes by. Although evolutionary scientists will continue to change their answers on various topics, the Word of God doesn't change. The creation story was recorded at least by Moses 3,400 years ago. The Genesis story of creation has not changed over the past 34 centuries. And the general beliefs or ideas or understanding about that uh, have not changed much either, though in recent times people have attempted to accommodate all sorts of evolutionary ideas. I think those ideas are basically incorrect. You need to start with what the Word of God says rather than with what men say. One mystery that holds stargazers and many others in fascination is life beyond our earthly borders. Billions upon billions of dollars have been spent in a desperate search for life outside the world we call home. Dr. Faulkner says, to many evolutionists, the concept of life beyond our planet conjures up images of alien beings. Are we alone in the universe is a question people have been asking for some time, and it really sparks a lot of interest into aliens and extraterrestrials and the whole bit. There's a whole field now out there called astrobiology. It's a study of life elsewhere in the universe. People are calling this a science. I have to laugh at that because if it is, it's the only science for which there is absolutely no data. 
but it doesn't stop people from speculating on the possibility of life out there. So why is the secular scientific community trying so hard to find life elsewhere in the universe? Well, because they believe that finding extraterrestrial life would support their belief in evolution. I think you've got two different worldviews. You have people who think that life just happens. Whatever the conditions are right, life inevitably develops and then evolves. We call such people evolutionists. Then you have people like myself who uh, believe in creation. We think that life is not an accident, but instead is designed. It's too complex to be explained in terms of natural processes and requires that there be a creator. Now, if you think that life is one of those things that happens from time to time, that it almost forces you to believe that life has arisen again and again in the universe. Otherwise, our planet, our existence becomes a unique event, and that is a very difficult thing for the evolutionary mindset. Some evolutionists do believe that, but most don't. They're forced to believe we live in a normal part of the world, a normal part of the universe, and so nothing extraordinary has happened here, so life must be common if it happened here. If intelligent beings are out there somewhere, certainly God, the creator of life, would have created them as well. But this brings up the question of the spiritual needs of other life forms. Would they, just like humans, need the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? We believe that man's sin in the Garden of Eden led to a curse on all of the world, including other parts of the universe. So if God created life elsewhere, I would think it would be subject to that fall and to that curse. On the other hand, what if there's intelligent life out there, life with souls, life with spirits, human-like creatures elsewhere? Do they also share in the curse? And if so, is it their sin or Adam's sin that led to that? And is there salvation for them? Because it seems to be that only people who've descended from Adam are eligible for salvation. So then, are we alone in the universe? Many creationists have concluded that certainly high forms of life, such as humans, does not exist anywhere else in the universe, and likely life at all doesn't exist in the universe. Again, making this planet unique, and as part of the creation worldview, we think that God has specifically made this planet for a suitable habitation for living organisms, including mankind, and we're unlikely to find any other planet out there that even comes close to matching the Earth and its design features. Another question from Science Magazine that has puzzled the evolutionary community is, what caused mass extinctions? ICR biologist Dr. Gary Parker is the founder of the Creation Adventures Museum in Florida. He says there's only one answer to this mystery. The Bible records one colossal mass extinction at the time of Noah's flood. And sure enough, when we compare the plants and animals living before and after Noah's flood, we notice that some groups that were real common before the flood are almost all gone now after the flood a record of decline in size and variety, the exact opposite of evolution. Extinction, not evolution, is the rule. And so the one mass extinction is that caused by Noah's flood. But, of course, God made provision for the survival of all the dry land animals and whose nostrils were the breath of life. And so in them, we see the post-flood survival. Of course, the animals in the sea survived outside the ark, but the environmental changes and the climate changes after the flood made it so, for instance, uh, brachiopods that were so common before the flood, the lamp shells, are now much less common. Clams and snails are more common living in a similar environmental zone. And so it really looks like mass extinctions have already been explained by creation scientists using the Bible as the surest guide to understanding God's world.
Although evolutionists are not admitting that the Bible has the answer to the question of mass extinction, Dr. Parker says the good news is at least they're now acknowledging the evidence for catastrophe. They recognize that there are sudden disappearances of whole groups of plants and animals, whole ecosystems. And it looks like that's really the key. Ecology, not evolution, is the key to understanding the so-called mass extinctions. When we're looking at the plants and animals in one rock layer and comparing it with the plants and animals in the rock layers above, we're really looking at different stages in the burial of different environmental zones during the year of Noah's flood. You could imagine, for instance, in fact, it's kind of pleasant to imagine, you know, on a scuba diving trip to the Florida Keys. And so you're out there in scuba gear, not too far offshore, and you're underwater and Oh, wow, you see all kinds of corals and clams and snails and certain kinds of fish and so on. And, and then you begin to swim toward the shore. And you leave the coral reef area and get into the sandy bottom. And wow, it looks like the corals all became extinct. You don't see the corals anymore. Some of the fish that were so abundant before seem to have disappeared entirely. Other plants and clams and snails that you didn't see before now appear in profusion. And then as you continue to swim, you get into water that's too shallow, stand up, take off your swimming gear, you know, walk ashore, and wow, it looks like all those sandy bottom sea creatures have suddenly disappeared. They've become extinct. And you walk into the hardwood hammock, and you see a different kind of environment altogether. And so what appears to an evolutionist to be a mass extinction is really just a transition from one eco-sedimentary or one environmental zone to another. In flood deposits, we find fossils of flowers and flowering plants. But Science Magazine's question of how did flowers evolve is misleading, considering that the Bible tells us they were created on day three of Creation Week. Nevertheless, evolutionists have wrestled with this question for over a hundred years, as Darwin himself called the origin of flowering plants, quote, an abominable mystery. Dr. Parker says modern evolutionists are still perplexed about this subject. There's been two competing theories. Uh, over the years when it comes to flowering plants uh, about what's the most primitive, you know, what was the first flower. And it's interesting that the magnolia can be treated one of two ways, as the most primitive, the simplest possible flower, the first kind of flower, or very little modified from it, or it can be treated as the most complex, the most highly evolved. <laughs> what that means is, of course, that evolutionists haven't got a clue because all the different flowering plants show up in profusion, looking just like they do today, at their first appearance in the fossil record. But even though the question of the origin of flowers is easy to answer when we look in God's Word, Dr. Parker points out that in Science Magazine, the question wasn't about the origin of flowers, but rather about the evolution of flowers. And so to get back to our basic question, how did flowers evolve... That's not a question science cannot answer or has not answered. That's a question science can answer and has answered in resounding ways. Flowers did not evolve. They were created. That's why they start complete and complex in incredible variety. Notice that in a very unscientific way, the editors of science are asking the wrong question and not even a scientific question. They're asking, how did flowers evolve? A scientist would want to know, how did flowers originate? Where did they come from? 
did they evolve or are they descendants of specially created kinds? The scientific evidence agrees soundly with scripture that they were separately created kinds. Complex, wonderful, created pleasant to the sight right from their first creation. And so, if evolutionists truly want real answers to some of their unanswerable questions, they must be willing to look at all options and possibilities, including creation. One of the reasons the evolutionists have been unable to answer these questions is that they have, in fact, asked the wrong question. (laughs) And so they're looking in the wrong place for the answer. And as the saying goes in the computer age, garbage in, garbage out. As long as they're only looking for evolutionary answers to these questions, they're going to look past the evidence in God's world that points us to the reality of God's Word and to our eternal hope of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please be sure to join us next week for Part 2 of Answers to Unanswerable Evolutionary Questions as we consider humankind's races, language and music, and so-called junk DNA. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.